Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you would open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. 1 John, chapter 4. I want to thank uh, Andrew Brown and Pastor Brian for preaching the last two Sundays. Um, <clears throat> the reason I asked them to do that, just kind of FYI, is that I have been um, working to prepare the material that I'm going to be teaching at the seminar, seminary in Chengdu, China, uh, the first week of July. So some of you have heard about some of the difficulties going on uh, in that nation, but the plan is still for me to, to go over there. And so I've been taking the last couple of weeks to concentrate on that. So very grateful for uh, Andrew and Brian uh, filling the pulpit the last couple of Sundays. A couple other things. Felix mentioned the prayer time that um, we're engaging in on Sunday mornings at about 9.15. Because we're going to be praying every Sunday morning, that means we're not going to be having our monthly Sunday evening prayer service. That would normally happen today. So no prayer meeting tonight. Uh, no prayer meeting uh, June and July either. Um, but again, we are praying every Sunday morning, 9.15, uh, in the fellowship hall. Um, so I would encourage you all to join us then. Also, one other thing regarding the pitch-in tomorrow, um, excuse me, next Sunday. Uh, Sydney just told us about the duck race. We are having a pitch-in meal uh, during that time. And so you're all encouraged to bring a side dish and a dessert and our hospitality team is gonna be providing hot dogs for us. So um, please come on out, if not just for the duck race, come on out and just uh, have some food and enjoy fellowship with everybody. Again, that's next Sunday after service, side dish and a dessert. That's next weekend. Speaking of last weekend, uh, some of you might have uh, watched the, uh, the royal wedding. Uh, and by that, I don't mean Brad and Jamie's wedding. Um, <clears throat> But the other royal wedding that took place uh, in England, uh, and I'm trying to advance the slide to uh, get a picture up here. Uh, there it is. So um, royal wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. This wedding was watched by about 30 million people in the United States. Um, who knows how many more millions of people watched the wedding throughout the world. Uh, but a lot of people talking about it, a lot of people enjoyed watching it. I watched part of it myself that Saturday morning. What is really unusual to me about this wedding is what it is about that wedding that's really getting so much attention. And one of the things getting a lot of attention is the sermon that was preached by this man, Bishop Michael Curry, uh, an American in the Episcopal Church here. And he's been receiving great praise for the sermon that he delivered, USA Today said he stole the show. Um, the Guardian, a British publication, said that his sermon will go down in history. Uh, the sermon was called The Power of Love, and Bishop Curry, very inspiring and gifted speaker and preacher, uh, called on us to imagine what it would be like if families and neighborhoods and businesses and governments were directed by love. But what he did so well is he tapped into the longing that all of us have to love others better and to be loved by others better. 
was very inspiring. Who is it that doesn't like to hear more about love? You know, there's nobody who says that love is overrated. There's nobody who says, yeah, I've been there, I've been loved before, and it's not really all that it's cracked up to be. Nobody says that. We all know how good it is to love and how good it is to be loved, and Bishop Curry tapped into that very well. Now, one of the most amazing things to me about his message is that he quoted the very same biblical passage that is before us this morning, because <laughs> we are going through here at New Life the book of First John. Um, this is, I don't think this is working, so could you advance that, Zach, please? Um, <clears throat> our series in First John, so we're just kind of moving through this one passage at a time. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Moving through this one passage at a time, and it just so happens that the passage we, we reach today um, is the passage that uh, maybe the, it's an operator problem, huh? Is that right? Okay, very good. What did you do, Dan? <laughs> I didn't hear what he said, and it's probably better. <laughs> What's that? Oh, gotcha. Okay, very good. All right, thank you, Dan. Thank you. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, where was I? Um, we have reached the passage in the book of 1 John. That is the passage that Bishop Curry preached on uh, last week. And so we're going to consider this in some more detail. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. And, um, you know, we're just going to open this up in a little more detail, see what else uh, this passage has to say about the power of love. So if you will permit me to steal that title from Bishop Curry, since we're preaching from the same passage, I'm going to do that. The power of love. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, uh, 1 John 4, 7 through 12. <clears throat> 1 John 4, starting with verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. God, by your spirit, would you please open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So what is it in this passage that kind of gives power to love? Where does love find its power? And there are three things. The first is, is this. It's in who God is. Who God is. Um, this thing is still a little sluggish. Okay, who God is. Look how the passage begins. Verse 7, there's an exhortation uh, to us from John. Behold, let us love one another. Now, this is um, something that John has been telling us repeatedly. He talked about this um, 
exhortation to love one another back in chapter 2. He talked about it again in chapter 3. And so here we are now in chapter 4, and the topic is coming before us again. And you might remember I said this a couple of weeks ago, when something is repeated in the Bible, what that means is very simple. It's important. It's something that we ought to pay very careful attention to. And so John here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, feels compelled to continually remind us to love one another. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been here, so I want to remind you the context of this passage. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 4, remember what John said here, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So this is the context in which John is speaking. He's still kind of thinking about testing the spirits to see who is true, who is false, who is of the light, and who is of the darkness. And he's already told us that there's kind of a doctrinal test, what a teacher might say about Jesus. That's how we can discern or how we can test the spirits. But we get another possibility here in verse 7 because John says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. So what John is saying here is that, you know, just as it's true that if somebody is a really loving person but gets up and teaches false doctrine, you don't want to listen to that person. But on the other hand, there are people who believe and can proclaim correct doctrine. But if their lives are not characterized by love, you probably shouldn't listen to them either because they're not even Christians. That's what John is saying. Do you see that? In verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Love is an absolutely essential trait, characteristic of anybody who claims to be a Christian. And there are people who they they know theologically a lot of stuff, but they don't love. Their hearts are filled with self-centeredness and hatred, and John is warning us against those kinds of people, again, in the context of testing the spirits. Now, why is it that love is so central to John? And the reason is in verse 8, the end of verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, and here it is, this is the, the, the verse that was quoted by Bishop Curry. This is uh, a favorite verse of many people. This is what um, people seem to know the most in the Bible is this phrase at the end of verse 8. God is love. God is love. Now, we should think carefully about how we understand this because there's a temptation to think, okay, God is love, and that means he's not anything else, that God is only love. And and that would be a wrong interpretation because as we look throughout the scriptures, we see other uh, statements about what God is or who God is. He is spirit, it says in John 4, 24. Uh, It says he is light in 1 John 1, 5. It says he is a consuming fire in Hebrews 12. Uh, I think it should be 29, Hebrews 12, 29. Um, so yeah, God is a God of love. But a lot of times people will hang on to that and they'll forget Hebrews 12, 29 in particular, that God is also a consuming fire. So what John is saying here is not that, that love is the only thing that God does. But what he is saying is that all that he does is shaped and motivated by his love. The foundation of all that God does is rooted 
and pointed forward, propelled. The engine of everything that God does is love. God is love. Why did he create the universe? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is because of his love. Why did he create you? Because of his love. Why did he create you the way you are? with your personality and your limitations and your skills and everything that makes you what you are. Why did God make you the way you are? Because of his love. Why are you going through the trouble that you're going through right now? Why are you dealing with the challenges that are before you in your life right now? A lot of reasons probably, but one of those reasons certainly is because God is love. Everything that he sends to you it's from his love. And that's why John Owen, a Puritan, says this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. And of course, we see the demonstration of his love mostly in the giving of his son. And I think that's what Owen is referring to here. How can we doubt his love when we know what he has done for us? But that springs from the very nature of who God is. God is love. Now, notice something that this is not saying. It is not saying that love is God. There is a difference. This is not saying love is God. What, what do I mean by that? What would be an example of love is God? Well, a few Sundays ago when we talked about love last time, I think back in chapter 3, we talked about that Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. Well, I mean, think of that title. All you need is love. I mean, what does that suggest? That means you don't need anything else. You don't need God. You don't need Jesus. You don't need scripture. You don't need wisdom. All you need is love. Now, I don't know if the Beatles you know, read into it quite that much, but there are a lot of people who believe in love in that way. It's just the only thing that really matters is love. And that's kind of making love into a kind of deified notion where it becomes the transcendent first and foremost thing to pursue that trumps everything else. But that's saying that love is God. Another example would be what uh, theologians and ethicists call the love ethic. You'll hear sometimes the love ethic. This is the idea that there is no, there's no law for us to be concerned about. There's no content to love. There's no specific direction that comes to us from God about how to love. All that matters is that you just, you just do the loving thing. In whatever situation you're in, just find the loving thing to do and do it and you'll be okay. And that's what we hear from our culture. But it's, it's very shapeless. It's very vague. You have different opinions about what the loving thing actually is to do. I mean, it had, you know, when somebody says just do the loving thing, well, your parents might have a very different idea about that than your friends. There's a difference in what that means. And often that phrase, just do the loving thing, can actually just be an excuse for you to do what you want. So that, that's not enough, but if we think of love as God, as if we're worshiping love somehow, uh, that's not what, what John is saying. What he said back in chapter 3 was this, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, but how do we love one another? As he commanded us, that's how. 
There's content to how we love. There's direction from God about how we love. There are right ways to love and wrong ways to love. We don't just love however we want to. We are not in a position to be able to define love how we wish. And yet that's what our culture would, would, would communicate to us all the time. But friends, listen, I mean, there are, you know, parents who think that it's loving to let their kids do whatever they want because they don't think it's loving to discipline them or challenge them. Well, that's not what the Bible says. There's content, there's direction to how parents should love their children. There are fathers who are away from their family all the time. They're never with their wife, they're never with their kids, but in their minds, they're saying, I'm earning a good living, I'm providing money for my family, and so that's all there is to loving them. And that, in my mind, is the loving thing to do, but that's not what the Bible would say. There's direction, there's content about how to love. There are single people who are engaging sexually with their boyfriend or girlfriend because they've been told that that's the way you love. You have sex as soon as you can. That's the way you express love. But that's not the way the Bible tells us to express love. Do you see the problem? When, when we make love as if love is God and if we obey this cultural exhortation to just do the loving thing, we end up basically just doing whatever we want, and in some cases loving wrongly. So here's how we find the power of love is we look to see who God is because God is love, and everything he says about what love is flows from his character as it is expressed to us on the pages of Scripture. So that's the first thing, the power of love found in who God is. But the second thing is we find the power of love in what Jesus did. What Jesus did. There is something a little bit abstract, <clears throat> I guess, about you know, this idea God is love. It's kind of a theoretical concept, you know, kind of in the clouds a little bit. But um, thankfully, God has made his love very concrete for us. And so we also find the power of love in what Jesus did. Look at verse 9. It says, in this the love of God was made manifest, that means made visible, made, made clear, made obvious, or made concrete, made less abstract. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. That's the way we really behold and see, practically speaking, on the ground what love looks like, that God sent his son into this world. Now, one of the amazing things about Bishop Curry's sermon at the royal wedding is that he actually said that before 30 million Americans on TV and millions of other people throughout the world. I mean, he said that Jesus came to die to save us. He said that Jesus gave up his life for us in that sermon. I mean, that is something you don't hear very often on network TV. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe it when I heard the guy say that. But there is something more that I wish Bishop Curry would have said. Now, the man only had 14 minutes. <laughs> uh, you really can't say everything there is to say about the gospel and about the love of God in, in 14 
minutes, and I certainly wouldn't want people uh, judging my sermons based on all the things that, that I don't say or could have said um, at the same time. This is a, a teaching opportunity, I, I think, and there is something that I wish Bishop Curry would have said, and it's this. It's that Jesus did not die just to show us the way. He did not go to that cross just so that we could marvel at his love and then go out and try to love like him. I mean, that's part of it, but that's secondary to the real reason, the more important reason why Jesus died, and it's in verse 10. Look, in this is love. This is what John is saying. Here's how we know what love is. It's not that we loved God. It's not It's not our efforts to love him. It doesn't start there. That really has nothing to do with it. It's not that we loved God. It's that he loved us. But how did he love us? What did that particular love entail? It's this. He loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's the reason why Jesus came and died to be a propitiation. Do you remember what that word means? We saw that earlier in 1 John. We learned about it in Romans. Propitiation. It means to turn away the wrath of God. Jesus came to die for sins, but not just to die for sins, but to die in such a way that God's anger against those sins would be turned away, would be appeased, would be relieved, would be satisfied so that we can then stand before God without fear of his anger and his condemnation. See, if we think of Jesus as just someone who came and sacrificed himself, which is a great act, but I I think we could rightfully ask this question, what about others who have sacrificed themselves? You know, Jesus Christ is not the only one to sacrifice himself for people. I mean, you hear all sorts of stories in battle of soldiers jumping on grenades, sacrificing themselves for their platoon. Um, we have been hearing stories about what happened in Noblesville with the school shooting, and there was that teacher, that teacher who tackled, apparently, the shooter and brought him down and was shot in the process, and the man has survived, thank God, he has survived, but he might not have survived. I mean, it seems like that man was willing to give his life to save his students. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a heroic, <clears throat> a heroic thing, a marvelous thing. But what's the difference between that then and what Jesus did? Did Jesus just do the same thing? He just came and sacrificed himself like soldiers do and like teachers do? What's the difference? This is what John is telling us here. There's a big difference. Jesus died for a purpose. He died in such a way that he took upon himself God's wrath. He bore God's anger against our sins. Other sacrificial deaths, no other sacrificial death in the history of the world did that. Only Jesus' death. This is what John Stott says. God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place bore our sin, and died our death. Thus, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. 
God himself gave himself in the person of his son to save us from his wrath against our sin, and it was all motivated by his great love. Jesus' death is absolutely unique, and we don't want to miss this. Yes, it's wonderful that he sacrificed himself out of love, but we lose the fullness of the gospel if we don't understand why. Jesus' death's The uniqueness of Jesus' death can be explained like this. It is the greatest sacrifice ever. That is the God-man sacrificing himself for sinful people. No other sacrifice like that. It averts the greatest danger, the possibility of being under the eternal wrath of God. And it gives the greatest gift. That is that we can be the recipient of God's eternal favor and love and mercy and kindness. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection has accomplished. That's what makes it so great. That's where you find power in love. The question is whether you've received that Jesus as your savior. I mean, have have you just been admiring Jesus from afar? Ah, I wish I could be like him. That's not what John is calling us to do. That's not what the Bible calls us to do First and foremost, first and foremost, give yourself to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Relieve yourself in knowing that the condemnation of God does not have to hang over your head. Now, you might ask yourself, now, wait a minute. Are you saying that God is a God of wrath and a God of love at the same time? Did did I hear you say that? Um, Yeah, I, I acknowledge to you that's a hard thing to, to kind of get in our heads. That's, that's difficult, but that is what I'm saying because I think that's what the Bible says. Bible over and over refers to God as a God of wrath and also a God of love. So h- how can that be? Well, first of all, think of this. God is not like us. <laughs> Remember, God is, is holy and eternal and righteous and pure, and we are not. And so his wrath and his anger is not like our anger. You know, very often we look at our anger or the way we have been the recipients of sinful anger, and then we think, well, that must be what God's anger is like, and that's a big mistake. God's anger is holy, it is righteous, it is principled, it is controlled, and it is always directed against what is absolutely evil. God's wrath is a righteous and good wrath, (laughs) And so remember that when you think of God's wrath and love. When you think of his wrath as righteous, it's not so hard to think of a righteous wrath and a righteous love being together. But more practically speaking, I would just say this. I mean, don't you know that as parents it's possible to be angry at your children and to love them at the same time? I mean, certainly that happens. I mean, certainly anger has been sinfully exerted upon children. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the parent who wants the best for his child, her child, and that anger goes forth, you could say, because the parent loves the child and wants what is best for him or her. Every year, um, I get a physical, and um, I'm uh, getting to that age in my 50s here where uh, I get a little more nervous you know, every time I go to my doctor for the, the physical and, and I'm expecting that, you know, one of these years I, I'm going to get some bad news or I'm going to hear that uh, they, they've got some concerns and they, they found this and they found that. Um, 
by God's grace, you know, that hasn't happened yet. And so in the last several years when I've been to the doctor, I've, I've gotten a, a clean bill of health. And I tell you, when, when I walk out of that doctor's office, I mean, I am like on cloud nine. I mean, I'm in a good mood for like two or three days after that because I've got a clean bill of health. I just feel so relieved by that. I feel so happy about that. I feel so joyful about that. The gift of health is such a wonderful thing. But I'll tell you, friends, the most important thing, the biggest issue that you have to deal with in this life is not your health. The biggest issue that you have to deal with is not poverty. It's not terrorism. It's not, it's not even school shootings. That's not the biggest issue that you have to face. The biggest issue you have to face is the wrath of God. That ought to be your biggest concern and ought to be number one priority on your list. How do I make sure that I am not under the wrath of God? And what John is telling us here in verse 10 is that there is a way by trusting this Jesus who has propitiated the wrath of God for our sins. What Jesus did, that's how we see uh, the wrath, uh, the power of love. The third thing is this. We see the power of love not just in who God is, but also in what Jesus did. And then finally, in how Christians live. And this is probably the thing that surprised me most as I was studying this passage. Look what it says in verse 12. No one has ever seen God, it says. No one has ever seen God. God is invisible. Remember I told you earlier, God is spirit. We we can't see God the Father. That's what John is saying. No one has ever seen him. You know, very often people will ask, oh, I just wish that God would show himself to us, or they might say, how can I believe in a God who I can't see? You know, a lot of people ask that question, and it's a good question. But here, look what John says, that there is a way that God has made himself visible. One, in sending his son, we already talked about that, that's when the love of God was made manifest, that's when it was made visible, when Jesus was sent. But how else has the love of God been made visible? Look what it says at the end of verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Perfected in us. Perfected in you. You want to know how people can see the love of God? In you. All of you sitting here today. And me. That's one of the ways that the love of God can be displayed to a watching world. This is how God's love is brought to its intended goal. This is how God's love finds its fulfillment on earth. It's in the lives that Christians live. And what does this look like? Well, if you go back to verse 11, um, John says this, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So he's giving us some direction there about what our love ought to look like. So if God loved us in a particular way, Following that pattern, we also ought to love one another. So when I said earlier that Jesus died and God showed his love for us in sending Jesus, not primarily as an example, that's right, but that doesn't mean that there's an example there for us. 
It's just that we shouldn't be following his example thinking we're going to save ourselves in that way. First of all, we trust in what Jesus has done. But once we're Christians, then the exhortation is that we are called to love in a similar way that God has loved us. And so think about that. How has God loved us? He, he has, first of all, he has pursued us. He's come after us. His love is a pursuing love. That, that's how we ought to love. We ought to pursue people. We ought to go after them. Remember what he said earlier? It's not that God loved us. Excuse me, it's not that we love God. It's that he loved us. He came after us first. His love comes first, and that should be the model for how we love others. Do you pursue people in love? Or are you one of these people that's always waiting for people to come after you? Christian love is a pursuing love. Maybe there's a phone call you need to make. Maybe there's an email you need to send. Maybe there's someone you need to go and drop in and see. That's what a pursuing love needs to do. What else? How else did God love us? Well, he sacrificed for us. We, we, we've heard about that. Jesus on the cross, dying on the cross. How about you? Do you love in a sacrificial way? Or are you protective of all of your resources? Are you protective of your time? Are you protective of your energy? You don't want to expend yourself too much. You'll love for a while, but when you get tired, you stop. You don't sacrifice. Christian love sacrifices. Christian love expends itself on behalf of others, wears itself out on behalf of others. How else did God love us? Well, he loved us not because we were lovely. He loved us to make us lovely. He didn't love us because we had anything to offer him. He loved us because he has a whole lot to offer us. And so as you think about loving, do you love only people who are going to give back to you? Do you love only people who are going to provide you some kind of advantage? Or do you love people whom no one else loves? That's the way God loves and that's the love that we're called to love. And what John is saying here is that when Christians love in that way, his love is then perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. This is my challenge to you. I would like to ask you and ask us as a church that, that we would think of ourselves in, in this way. I am an agent through whom the love of God will be made visible to the world. Or as a church, we could put that in the plural. We are agents through whom the love of God will be made visible to the world. How would that change? How will that change the way you live tomorrow? How is that going to change the way you relate to your family tonight? Thinking of yourself as an agent through whom the love of God will be made visible to the world. Friends, let no one in your presence say that they have not seen the love of God. If you have people in your lives on a regular basis, they ought to see the love of God in you. Because that's why Jesus died for you, that you might live through him and that his love would be perfected in you. That's the power of love. The power of love, seen in who God is, seen in what Jesus did, and seen in how Christians live. What an amazing love this is. And we're going to sing in response. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you that you've loved us so well. It is so 
rewarding, so sweet to be loved by you in the extraordinary way that you have, giving your son for us, turning away the wrath of God, filling us with your spirit. Lord, let this place, New Life Presbyterian Church, be a place of powerful outflowing of love that the world would look and see and say, glory be to God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.